And as he, he being Jesus, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible with God. Peter begins to, to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or his brothers or his sisters or his mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. You guys have a seat. Good morning, church. Good morning. Man, that was so much better than a 9 o'clock. And I'm not just saying that. It, like, actually was. Much better. Uh, thank you all for being here so much, uh, for, for being here this morning. Uh, Sunday morning is my favorite day of the week. I love getting together with y'all and just worshiping God and sitting under teaching the word. And so I'm super thankful for that you guys are here. And actually, this is my first uh, week. Last week was my first week back. I actually just got back from paternity leave. Uh, yeah, thank you. Flourish and Grace, man, you all have been so kind to Monica and I, too. We just, I just want to thank you on behalf of both of us for how the way uh, over the last like three weeks, you've been caring for us and stuff. But, but yeah, we had a little girl, Susanna Joy. If I was a good dad, I'd have a picture of her, but I forgot. So <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, but she's, she's super sweet. And uh, so, but actually three days before little Susanna was born, um, it was Eliana, um, our oldest kid's uh, sixth birthday, right? And so uh, this year, we kind of did like a big kind of combined birthday party for Eliana and Tally. Tally's our second, our second oldest, and their birthdays are really close, and they'd never had a birthday party before. <laughs> and so we're like, hey, let's do something big. But we kind of have established this tradition that like on the actual day of our kid's birth, regardless of when we celebrate the party, we want to do something special for them. And so uh, this year, 
uh, we went to a movie and, and we saw uh, Sing 2. This was like kind of one of their first movie theater experiences. Um, and, you know, Sing is kind of this, this cute little musical or whatever. Um, but at the end of the movie, uh, they played this song uh, that I hadn't heard forever and I'd never really thought about. But as I was listening to this song, I was just thinking, my goodness, like, like this is it. Right? Like, like this song perfectly describes the angst of the human condition. <laughs> you know, uh, has anyone seen the movie? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone? It's, uh, it's uh, Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For by you 2 And my goodness, I, I don't, like, if that is not the cry of the human soul, like, I don't know what is, right? This is the angst that so many of us are going through in life. This is the angst that when we're honest with ourselves, we feel it, right? We, we try to ignore it. In, in those quiet moments, though, when we're, when we're shutting off the TV or we're putting our head down on the pillow, we find this sort of angst creep in, right? There are people in this room who are kind of on this journey now going, man, what is it all about? Like, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And so I got curious, and I, I started looking up the lyrics of this song. I was like, man, what is this song about? And it's actually about a person who feels like something is missing, Right? And they're looking for it in all of these different areas. And whatever they're pursuing, every single time, it ends up coming short. Um, I, I looked up the lyrics of this. I'm going to share some of them with you. Uh, it says, I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields. I have run. I have crawled. I have scaled these city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. So I have kissed honey lips, felt healing in her fingertips. I have spoken with angels, held hands with the devil, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for, right? He's saying, man, I've tried all of these experiences. I've climbed mountains. I've walked through the fields, right? He says, I've run. I've been in this position of power. I've crawled. I've, I've been humbled, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. He says, I sought significant in, uh, in, in relationships. I've been good, right? He says, I uh, was saying with the angels, I've been good, because I've held hands with the devil. I've been bad. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And I'm listening to this song. I'm going, my goodness, this song sounds like it came out of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? There's a sting to it that we all kind of feel. Because, you know, the, the, we, we all can kind of resonate with this, this man, I haven't found it. Right? And, and this is the place that the man in our text finds himself in today. He, he is a guy who has everything. He has done everything. And and, and Everything that he has done would lead us to believe that he feels secure, that he feels confident in life, and yet he still hasn't found what he's looking for. There's a hollowness, there's an emptiness in his soul that success and achievement cannot fill. This man is insecure about some of the ultimate questions in life. He's saying, where do I stand with God? How, what does God think about me, right? What, what will happen to me when I die, this man is longing for assurance. He wants the assurance that God accepts him and that he has a place in God's kingdom and that he will have eternal life, but he doesn't have that assurance. He feels insecure before God. He feels insecure about his eternity. And I think so many of us can find ourselves in that place where we're, we're doing all these things, right? And, and we have to ask ourselves, we're asking ourselves, is that enough? Where do I stand before God? Will I have eternal life? And so when we ask that question, sometimes we feel this pit in the, in the middle of our guts, right? Because we're in the same place as this rich young ruler. We don't, we don't know the answer to this question. But this 
text helps us to understand the answer to this question. What do we need to do to be right before God, to enter into his eternal kingdom? And the first truth that we're going to see that emerges out of this text is that if we want to have a right standing before God, if we want to feel his uh, acceptance and his pleasure, if we want to be in his kingdom, we have to trust Jesus entirely. Right? We, we must trust Jesus entirely. And, and to kind of help us get the context right, to help us get this point, we want to reset the context. Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus is on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem where he's ultimately going to lay down his life, right, for, for our sins. And Mark 8, 9, and 10, they're often referred to as the journey of discipleship. This word, this phrase like on the way gets repeated a bunch of times. And so people call this the journey, the on the way. But all the way through, Jesus is teaching his disciples about what it looks like to be his follower, Right? He's, he's challenging their assumptions. He's, he's flipping these paradigms over on what it means to be a follower of God. And in our text today, he's kind of continuing this journey. And as he's leaving this town, this man is running after him, and he throws himself down at Jesus' feet. Right? And, and Mark doesn't give us a ton of adjectives to describe this guy. Uh, we, we know that he's wealthy in the text, but uh, Luke and Matthew both tell this same story. Matthew 19.20 tells us that this guy is young, and Luke 18, 18 tells us that he is a ruler. And so there's this guy. We find out he has youth, he has affluence, he has influence, and yet he falls at the feet of Jesus. And this is the first time we see anything like this in the Gospel of Mark, right? There have been plenty of people who have come to Jesus uh, in, in these moments of despair where they're going, man, my life is a train wreck. I've got nothing going. Like, like you know, we see the Syrophoenician woman. We see, we see this woman who is bleeding. We see Jarius. All of these people were in these moments of despair, and they threw themselves at the feet of Jesus. But we've never seen a person like this, someone who on the surface seems to have everything right. But what we find out is that this man is also in a moment of despair, right? But his despair is internal. He's not sure about where he stands with God. Has he done enough? Is he good enough? Will God accept me? This is the question that is haunting him. And so he falls at the feet of Jesus and he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And everyone around him, they're shocked, right? They're confused, right? This is like, this is like Jeff Bezos running down Wall Street in New York, falling at the feet of somebody and saying, what must I do to start a business, right? Like, it's like, man, if anyone should know the answer to this question, it's this guy, Right? If there's anyone with whom God is pleased, it was this guy. That's what everyone's thinking. Right? It, was, it was assumed in Jewish culture that, that if you were financially prosperous, it was because you were a good person. Your wealth was believed to be a reward for your faithfulness. And so if this guy is wealthy, surely God is pleased with him. Surely he has eternal life. But on top of that, he was a moral person. He worked hard to follow the rules. The Pharisees in that day taught that if you kept the rules, if you did everything that you could do to follow the Jewish law, that you would have eternal life, that you would be given resurrection at the end of days. And so here's this guy. He's checking all the boxes. He's wealthy. He's following the rules. He's doing everything that he should be doing, and yet he feels off. There's a hollowness in his soul. There's an insecurity about his eternity. He doesn't have the assurance of knowing where he stands with God. I think many of us in this room right now can relate to that. We're trying to do the right things. We're working hard, right? We want to we convince others and ourselves that we are worthy, but in the back of our minds, we're still uncertain. Have I done enough? 
Am I good enough? It's where this man is. And so he's asking Jesus, what else can I do? What thing can I do that will give me the peace of mind knowing that I have been accepted by God? And Jesus' response is brilliant. It's brilliant. He, he responds in such a way that causes this man to, to kind of come to the end of himself and yet simultaneously acknowledge that what he's doing is not working. Right? Jesus tells him, hey, if you want eternal life, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't defraud. He gives him the last five commands of the Ten Commandments. And the man responds, teacher, all these commands I've kept from my youth. Jesus is going, yeah. He says, look, man, I'm going to challenge your presumptions a little bit. If you want to turn alive, follow the law. Right? That's what you think. He's going, I'm doing that. Right? I'm doing that, but it's not working. And Jesus is like, exactly. That's the point. I want you to acknowledge that what you are already doing, what you, your, your hard work to follow the law, it doesn't. Boomers, but I'm sure you said this to your kids all the time too. Uh, he says, what is the definition of insanity? Anybody? Exactly. Doing the same thing. That's not actually a definition of insanity if you're wondering. If you Google it, it's actually a different definition. But yeah, we were told, we were told our whole lives, right? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that's what this guy is doing, right? Jesus is saying, look, man, doing more isn't going to fix your problem. You're already doing everything. I remember as a kid being in the exact same place. I didn't understand the gospel, right? I didn't understand grace. I, I, I thought Christianity was all about um, trying to do enough to please God so that he would look at me and not be mad at me. And if I didn't confess all my sins, that like I was done. I remember at night I would be kind of terrified. I was, I was a neurotic little kid, I guess, anxious or something. But I would sit there and try to recount my sins, right? All right, God, I did this and I did this and I did this because I believed that if I didn't confess all my sins and Jesus came back, man, I was done, Right? There was something in me that told me my best wasn't good enough, and it was true. It's true. When this man approached Jesus, he addressed him, good teacher. Now, this word good, it's, a, it's kind of a weird word. It's agathein in the Greek. It's a word that's typically used uh, to refer to God only. And so this man is calling Jesus good and teacher. He's not acknowledging Jesus as God, and so Jesus corrects him. And this is a correction with a little bit of a sting. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. But I have to imagine that this statement was a little bit of a barb in this guy's heart because no one includes him. No one includes me. No one includes you. No one is good except God. Categorically, apart from Jesus, we are not good. That is our status. And yet, that is what we long to be. We long to be good. When God created, uh, completed creation, he looked over all that he had made, including humanity, and he said, it is very good. This was the verdict that was pronounced over the, our lives, right? Over the lives of humanity. And, and it is the verdict that we long for. We want to hear someone say, you are good. 
You see, when humanity was in the garden prior to the fall, we were in this perfect, loving relationship with God. We were secure in our identity in him, and we rested on God's positive affirmation in our lives. God looked over all he created, and he said, it is very good. And I bet our first parents heard that man, and their just hearts leaped out of their chest. Right? This, this all-powerful God, all-supreme creator of the cosmos looked at them and said, you are good. This is the verdict that we were created to live under. Right? And this is the verdict that we all deeply desire. However, just a couple pages later in Genesis, we see that our first parents rebelled against God. And God's verdict over humanity had changed. He saw our rebellion and he said, this is not good. This is, this is not good. And all of us are born in the same way. We are born in rebellion towards God and towards goodness. And, and this, is like, this is why we naturally, you know, as kids, we, we hit and we bite and we fight, right? We've got four kids. I've, we, you know, I've probably heard this a hundred times, but we have never taught them how to disobey. They just do it naturally. I spend the rest of my life teaching them how to obey. And the rest of Scripture kind of confirms this, right? Categorically, we are not good, Romans 3, uh, starting with verse 10, he's talking about, Paul is talking about the default human condition. And he says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. While, while God can and does exercise his common grace by us doing good things, it doesn't make us categorically good. It is possible for us to do good things, but because of our rebellion against God, because of our desire to be the kings of our life and not submit to his kingship, because of our sin, we are categorically not good. Just like Jesus told this man, no one is good except God alone. And yet we deeply desire this pronouncement over our lives. You are very good. We want to hear it. And so what do we end up doing? Right? We either act as our own God. We'll establish our own ethical standards, our own code of conduct, and then we'll work ourselves to the bone trying to keep it. Or we'll find some sort of political or, or, or religious system that has some rules that we can follow. And we put this pressure on ourselves so that we can try to earn this pronouncement of very good. Right? We want others and we want ourselves to think this. You are very good. And the sad thing is that even if we convince ourselves, even if we can get everyone else around us to think that we are good, we can never convince God. Right? God's standard for good is perfection, and it's a standard we can never attain. It's a standard that every person in this room has already failed to meet, myself included, right? And not only that, but, but God sees our hearts. He knows our internal motivation Right? So regardless of what our outward appearance looks like, our outward actions are, we can never fool God. And our good work is never enough to make up for the secret bad that is in our heart. We can't do anything to fix it. Later in Revelation 3 verse uh, 20, Paul says this. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. So if we are categorically not good before God, because of our rebellion against him, and there is no way for us to earn our place in God's kingdom, what can we do? This is the question that the disciples asked Jesus in, in 1026. They're saying, my goodness, man, if this guy can't be saved, then who can be? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. 
He is saying it is impossible for humanity to save itself. God's standard is perfection. No one can attain this. With man, it is impossible, but not with God. Right? But is one of the best words in the Bible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Our salvation, our right standing before God is only possible if God does the work. Right? If we want to have a right standing before God, if we want to feel the peace that comes from the pronouncement, you are very good, you have to stop trusting in your own works and trust in Jesus entirely. Trust in Jesus entirely. You must acknowledge that you are not good and that your works are insufficient and you need to trust Jesus' work, the work that Jesus did on the cross because that is enough. And Pastor Benjamin talked about this last week, right? This word trust is important. The Bible does not teach that knowing about Jesus will save us, right? A mental assent to the person of Jesus does not save us. Belief in Jesus does not save us, right? The Bible says that even demons believe in Jesus and shudder. The only thing that saves us is trusting in Jesus completely. The moment we put our efforts on the same level as his, we disrespect and we diminish the work that he did. And so our efforts cannot save us. We trust in Jesus's efforts. And the beautiful thing is that scripture says that when we do this, Jesus's righteousness is credited to you. Right? You, you have the same pronouncement over your life as Jesus himself does. You become adopted into the family of God and God looks down on you and he says, you are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. This is the pronouncement that we long for. Is that not what we want to hear? God's pronouncement over your life will go from not good to very good and it's because this pronouncement was not secured by your work but by the work that Jesus did. Jesus completed work on the cross. And because it's in Jesus' completed work on the cross, we can rest in that. We will never lose it. But in order to receive this gift from God, you have to stop trusting your own efforts. You have to stop trusting your own work and you trust entirely in Jesus. And so the first thing that you can do to have the assurance of God's pleasure over your life is actually to not do, right? It's to not do, but to trust Trust in Jesus completely. The second thing is to cherish Jesus supremely. The next truth that we see in this text is that if we want to inherit eternal life, we cherish Jesus supremely. Um, after Jesus caused this man to, to recognize his moral deficiency and his inability to earn a good standing before God, Jesus actually highlights the reason that this man cannot trust Jesus entirely, and it's because he doesn't cherish Jesus supremely. Jesus looks at this man and he says, one thing you lack, go sell everything that you have and give your money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And this guy heard this man and his face fell. In this request, Jesus exposed this man's greatest love, and in so doing, he exposed this man's idol. And so for anyone who's newer to church, this word idol, it's kind of a churchy word that we use to describe anything that we love more than God. And our propensity is towards idolatry. This also stems back to the garden. We are by nature worshipers, right? We, we love to sing the praises of what we love, Ask any Apple fan how they feel about their phone, right? They'll tell you all about it. Or I'm from, I'm from Colorado, man. Go to a Broncos game in Denver, and you will see that as a people, we love to sing the praises of what we love. 
is because we were made to love and to worship God. We were created to be in relationship with God and to glorify him with our lives. And in the 1600s, a bunch of brilliant Christian uh, you know, kind of got together and they were asking some of these big questions about life. And, and, you know, the first question that they asked, they said, man, what is the purpose of life? Like, why are we here? What, what, is, what is the chief end of humanity? And so they scoured the, the scriptures, man, like Genesis all the way to the maps, right? Looking for the answer. Like, what is the chief end of humanity? And they, they kind of came to the conclusion throughout the Bible that, that our purpose is to glorify God, right? To worship God and to enjoy him forever. This is what we were created to do. But our sin separates us from God. And our love, instead of going to God first, will actually go to other things. And our, our loves become disoriented, right? We start loving things in the wrong order. And anything that we love more than God, Scripture calls an idol. John Calvin, he was a famous Reformation theologian. Uh, he writes this about our fallen state. He says that the human mind is a perpetual forge of idols. What he is saying is that since we are made to love and worship God, when our love is not rightly oriented towards God, we will find other objects for our affections. We will find something else that's supreme in our life, something else to be the object of our affection. For this man, it was wealth. Jesus tells him, sell off everything he owned and give it to the poor. His idol was money. Money is a, money is a great tool and a terrible master. It is not sinful to be affluent, but it, it, it's not pious to be in poverty, right? Jesus isn't concerned with your wallet. He wants your heart, and he knows that where your money goes, your heart will follow. And it's so easy for, for money and wealth to cool our affections for God. Wealth and possessions give us this illusion of security, safety, and control, right? And, and, and if we are not careful, Wealth can put us in this place in which we are not dependent on God and we become self-sufficient. We start to take the things that we have for granted and we think, man, I earned this. This is mine. When, when in reality, every good and perfect gift comes from above, right? From the Father of light, as James tells us. And this is why Jesus talks so often about wealth and greed. In Mark chapter 4, when we were talking about the parable of the sowers, he said that uh, there are different things that can prevent the gospel from taking root in our life. And one of them is wealth. He said the seeds sowed among the thorns were those who heard the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Wealth is deceitful. It lures us into a sense of security. It can make us comfortable, and then it can enslave us because we need to maintain that level of comfort. We put our heads down, we work, we get that paycheck so that we can keep our status of life while the gospel gets choked out in our lives and we live this life that's unfruitful in the things that matter most. This is the danger of wealth, right? Wealth isn't bad, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. It's like a firework, right? It can do beautiful and amazing things, but if we're not handling it properly, it's going to blow us up. And that's exactly what happened to this man. His love for his possessions, for his wealth, actually prevented him from loving Jesus. Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into the kingdom of God. This is not, for anybody who raised in church in the 90s, you probably heard this, that there was this uh, wall around the city of Jerusalem, and there was this little door called the, the needle gate that camels had to get on their knees to crawl through. That's not true. Maybe one person in this room has heard that, but if you have, I just want to dispel that. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying there's an actual needle and an actual camel, and it's easier to get this thing through that than for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. And the scary thing is, 
that if you own a car and a home, you're in the top 5% of the world's wealth, right? If you earn more than $25,000 a year, U.S. currency, you are in the top 10% of all income earners in the world. Everyone in this room is wealthy. Like we said, wealth isn't bad, it's dangerous. And as followers of Jesus, we must lean into this gospel identity as stewards who share. We talked about this last week in gospel fluency, right? We, we must see ourselves as managers, not as owners. And we use our wealth as a tool for the expansion of God's kingdom. Clement of Alexandria, he, he was a Christian who lived like almost 2,000 years ago. This guy's old, like 100, 100s AD. And he wrote this book called The Salvation of the Rich. And I think he nails it. He says, he says let this teach the prosperous that they, not, or they are not to neglect their own salvation, as if they had been already foredoomed, right? Don't let them neglect their own salvation as if it's a lost cause. But on the other hand, cast wealth to, don't let them cast wealth to the sea or condemn it as a traitor and as an enemy to life, but learn in what way how to use wealth and obtain life. So if we're prosperous, we're not going to just say, oh, man, I'm going to throw, throw my hat in the ring. I'm done. Like, my salvation, I can't, I can't have that. No. Like, we can still be saved. And if, and if you know, we, we have possessions, we're not just going to throw them all away so that we can be poor and kind of buy into this prosperity gospel. Jesus instructed this rich young ruler to use his resources for the kingdom of God. Right? He said, sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Jesus and the kingdom of God are pro-helping the poor. Right? So this idea of selling everything that we have it's not a universal maxim. It's not a command that we all have to obey. However, stewarding our resources for God's kingdom, that is certainly a universal maxim. That's a universal command that we are all to follow. So we are managers, not owners, right? Money is a great tool and a terrible master. And there are some people in this room who are mastered by money, right? Are, are you a person who lives for your paycheck? Are you a person who lives to kind of build bigger storehouses, have a more comfortable life? Or maybe you're in a comfortable life now, and you work tirelessly to maintain it, and money has become your master. And if that is you, it's time to repent, right? We say, God, free me from having money as my master, and free me to use my resources for the expansion of your kingdom, there's some people in here who, who, who money isn't your master, right? Maybe that's not an idol in your life. Maybe it's a career, right? The, the status that comes uh, with it. Or, or, or maybe uh, your first love isn't Jesus, but it's family. And family has become the idol in your life, right? I we all have to ask ourselves, what if the thing that you love and this thing that you have been told is good your entire life is actually the thing that is keeping you from Jesus? Would you give it up? Right? Most of us won't even put our phones down to spend time with Jesus. I say this all the time, but it's true. We will sacrifice everything at the altar of what we love supremely. If we love our work supremely, our work is our idol, and we will sacrifice our relationship with Jesus, we will sacrifice our family, and we will sacrifice our time to this idol of work. If you love your family as the most supreme, right? Family has become your idol. You will sacrifice God's mission and purpose in your life for a soccer game or a performance. Or maybe you will not leave a situation that's a bad situation that's keeping you from Jesus because of what your family will think about it. If you love Jesus supremely, you will lay your entire life at the foot of Jesus. You will sacrifice your life. You'll say, my family is yours. My job is yours. My relationships are yours. My experiences are yours. 
But the difference is, Jesus is the only thing that we can love supremely that can also satisfy, satisfy us supremely. Nothing else can do that. Wealth comes and goes. Jobs are fickle. Friends and family will always hurt us. But Jesus always loves us. He always does what's best for us. He always works out all things for the good of those who are called, who, for, for those of How would this story have gone if he chose differently? If he said, okay, Jesus, I'm going to sell everything I have. I'm going to give my money to the poor. How do you think he would have left? I think he would have left sad. I think he would have left sad. He would have been giving up something that he loved dearly to follow Jesus. And in that moment, I think he would have been met with sadness. Maybe in the weeks and months to come, it would have been hard and he would have been sad. But the difference is, is that he would have had Jesus. And Jesus is better than anything that we will leave behind. And Jesus meets, our, meets us in our sadness, and he turns our mourning into laughter. Right? That's what the scripture says. Following Jesus isn't always easy, but it's always good. And for, for us, this is the last way to enter into Jesus' kingdom and, and to experience this eternal life. It is by following Jesus completely. We are to trust Jesus entirely Cherish Jesus supremely. And lastly, we are to follow Jesus completely. Come and follow me. This was the last command that Jesus gave this rich young girl. He said, go sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. If we want to experience eternal life or the kingdom of God, we must follow Jesus completely. And it's not because that if we don't follow well enough, we'll lose our salvation. That is not why. Right, we have already talked about this. We've already tackled this. Like Salvation is secured by the completed work of Jesus, not by our own work. And so if our own work did not achieve it, our own work will not make us lose it. And Scripture over and over and over again says, man, once you have trusted in Jesus fully, your assurance is assured. So this imperative to follow Jesus completely is not a preventative command to prevent you from losing your salvation. The reason we follow Jesus completely is to experience eternal life now. Like eternal life starts the minute you trust in Jesus. When, when, when Jesus is describing the reality of the kingdom of God to Peter, right? Peter was a man who was fishing. And Jesus says, man, come and follow me. He gets up out of his boat. He leaves his family behind. And he comes and follows Jesus. And, and, and Peter is or Jesus is describing eternal life to Peter. He says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Eternal life is not something that we sit around and wait for. We don't become followers of Jesus and wait to die so that we can have eternal life. The, when we trust in Jesus, when we cherish him, we start to experience life more closely to the way that we were intended to experience it. Because when we trust in Jesus, we're brought into his kingdom. The man asks Jesus about eternal life. However, whenever Jesus responds or talks about it, he doesn't talk about eternal life. He talks about the kingdom of God. Right? The, the eternal life is just a part of the kingdom of God. And all throughout Mark, we've been talking about the kingdom of God. Simply put, the kingdom of God is the rule of God, which brings healing and restoring to all things and will eventually conquer everything that would oppose God. It conquers death. It conquers loneliness. It conquers sadness. It conquers pain. It conquers abuse. 
And when we trust in Jesus, that healing starts to take root in our lives now. We start to become restored now. The more we follow Jesus completely, the more earth begins to feel like heaven. And in, and in the life of Jesus, we actually see the kingdom of God on display. We get glimpses of what it looks like. He's healing people. He's casting out the forces of darkness. He's providing food. He's, he's removing scarcity. He's raising dead people back to life. And this is the, what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what we get to be a part of. We enter it immediately. We give up our lives and we gain the kingdom. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. It's an upside-down kingdom. We gain by losing. We become first by becoming last. Jesus' life is the good life, and this is the good life. But it's not always easy, right? Jesus says there are persecutions. There's a cost. And some of that cost will be what you have to give up to follow him. And so, so following Jesus completely looks like saying no to certain things so that we can say yes to Jesus, Right? In life, this is just a general rule. Whenever you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. Every time I make a big decision, I'm saying, if I say yes to this, what am I saying no to? And if I say no to this, what am I saying yes to in its place? This is the way it works. This is the choice that the rich young ruler had. He could choose Jesus or he could choose wealth, and he chose wealth and he lost Jesus. And he forfeited eternal life. Jesus is the bread of life. Right? The more closely that we follow Jesus, the more abundantly we will experience life. But that means that we will have to say no to other things. And the question is, what is Jesus asking you to say no to so that you can say yes to following him completely? Right? What, what is it that you have to say yes to so that you can say no to things that are harmful in your life? Is it a toxic relationship that you have to say no to? Is it religion? Is it the, 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 the desire to prove yourself through your works and achievements? Is it your family? Is it your vocation? And the real question is, are any of those things worth it? Flourishing Grace, can you imagine what it would look like if we were a people who put our yes on the table, right? We said, man, here you go, Jesus. This is my yes. Do with it whatever you want. If our guiding principle in decision-making was the gospel and Jesus' purpose is, what would that look like? What if we weren't a people who, who moved for work, but instead we moved for church? Right? In our culture, we're, we're so uh, governed by career and vocation and life goals that, that we'll move around all over the country to find a job, and then we just go to whatever church happens to be there. But what if it was the other way around? What if we heard about a church that was so passionate about the mission of Jesus that we said, man, I'm going to move to be a part of that church. I'm just going to take whatever job I can get, whatever job happens to be around. Josh Gardner, if you've talked to Josh Gardner, you've probably heard about this before. He's told me about it like a hundred times. He loves this ministry called The Salt Company. It's a great ministry. But what's really cool is they're a ministry that disciples college students. And when the college student graduates, instead of looking for a career, trying to start a career, they look to go start a church. They say, where's a land or an area that doesn't have churches? I'll go move and be a part of that, and I'll just take whatever job I can find. Right? What if we were a people who, who, who said no to moving closer to friends and family so we could say yes to moving to people who don't know Jesus? Monica and I have friends from seminary, dear friends, family of five, three little kiddos, that when they graduated, they didn't go back home to Iowa. They packed up their bags and they moved to Afghanistan. He said, this is a place where people need to know Jesus. We're moving there. We're going to tell them about Jesus. And they're actually translating the Bible into languages that have never had a biblical translation before. What if we were that kind of people? What if we were a kind of people who said, man, I'm going to stay 
so that I can be a part of God's kingdom work here. I have a friend named Alan, Alan Briggs in Colorado. He's, he's a big part of kind of the, the church planning scene. He's helped plant a bunch of churches out that way before. Um, but I remember there was this time uh, where, where he was kind of getting this itch to go. He wanted to go somewhere cool and attractive. He wanted to go to Boulder or Seattle or whatever. And during that time, God convinced him that, man, I don't get the zip code wrong. I put you exactly in the place that you need to be. And so Alan actually, instead of moving away, he doubled down. He bought a house in a neighborhood next to a school, and he started doing this thing called Free Coffee Fridays. Every single Friday morning during the school year, he would go out there, and he would serve coffee to the teachers. And the neighbors saw it, and they're like, man, this is incredible. We want to be a part of it. And so they came. His small group came, and soon enough, there was like 30 people around this school loving and serving the teachers. And they actually, he got to be a part of seeing his neighbors come to salvation, seeing teachers come to salvation. Right, right. The simple decision to stay and to put down roots had kingdom impact. And can you imagine what Davis County would look like if we were people who said no to going so that we could say yes to being a part of God's work here? I don't know what that would look like, right? But I have a sneaking suspicion that it would look like renewal. I have a sneaking suspicion that it would look like revival. I have a sneaking suspicion that it would look like the kingdom of God expanding in Davis County and that we would get to be a part of it. This is the kind of life that I want to be a part of. On a life that has eternal purpose, walking closely with Jesus, being integrally involved in the work that he is doing. Because if we're not, we're going to be like the U2 song, right? We're, we're gonna, if we're not walking closely to Jesus, we're going to go from place to place, from job to job, experience to experience, looking for satisfaction. And we're going to find ourselves like this rich young rule going, man, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Because what our hearts are looking for, what we are longing for, what we are desiring is Jesus. I love the last verse of this song. Um, if any of you are familiar with U2 and kind of Bono's story, he actually became a follower of Jesus at the height of his music career. And I think that experience made it into this song because this is what he writes in this last verse. He says, I believe in the kingdom come. Then all the colors bleed into one. You broke the bonds. You loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame. You know I believe it. This is the place where our hearts can feel satisfied. And it's only in Jesus. And so I know that there are people in this room right now who, where, where you're like this rich young ruler. You don't have the sense of assurance in your life. You don't know how God feels about you. You don't know what God thinks about you. And you are striving to please him, right? To do enough for him to say, well done. If that is you, trust Jesus entirely. Don't trust in your own works. Cherish him completely. Follow him Right? And there are some of us who have trusted Jesus entirely, but we still kind of have this creeping in our voice. We're, we're not sure about how things are. There's insecurity. Man, if that is you, cherish Jesus supremely. Follow him completely. Look at your life and say, man, what am I cherishing more than Jesus? What am I saying yes to that's making me say no to Jesus? Because our hearts are only satisfied when we rest in Jesus. Right? Augustine said, our hearts are restless until we rest in him. And so we want to be a people who trust Jesus entirely, who cherish Jesus supremely, and who follow Jesus completely. Please pray with me, church. Father, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for the message of the gospel. That's not the works of our hands that establishes us, that it's a free gift given from you, that we can trust you and that we can receive it. We ask that we would be a people who would do that, who would put our love for you above our love for anything else and that would walk in obedience to you, following you with all that we are. And we ask that we would see the implications of that in our community, that we would see people come to know you, that we would see Davis County transformed as your kingdom comes here. 
We love you and we praise you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.